people misunderstand how possessions happen. Decades of Hollywood misrepresentation, separation from old traditions, and a culture of silent suffering keeping these things out of the public consciousness and make us vulnerable. When it began happening to me, I had no idea what I was dealing with. That ignorance let it fester and grow. I'm actually certain of the exact moment of contamination. I was on an archaeological dig in Montana with two dozen other students, and we were unearthing ancient out-of-place fossils and artifacts that multiple years of meltback had freed from receding glaciers. There was a rather huge range of relics to be discovered, including never-before-seen religious sundries used by cavemen and dated some 90,000 years before humans were supposed to have come to North America. While Eurasian Neanderthals had just began starting to bury their dead, these surprisingly modern bones had belonged to people with complex worshipping practices. It was all disconcerting enough that our professors who had chosen this site more or less at random had so far chosen not to go public with the discovery. There was every chance we were mistaken, the data was flawed, or something extraordinary had happened to transport these things here. It would take time to piece together an accurate picture. That particular day, that particular hour, a fellow student named Greer had yet again bullied me into taking his shift. I was already tired from digging all morning, but he was built far more like these sturdy cavemen than I was, and I didn't feel like taking another secret punch in the gut. As a result, I was the one dusting away at the dirt from an oddly spiked kneecap when a cold gust of wind knocked me forward and caused me to slice my pinky finger. It was nothing, really. A scrape. The kneecap's protrusion was still sharp even after 90,000 years, and I rubbed my finger against my jacket to dispel the itch the scrape had brought with it. I couldn't have known at the time that this malformed skeleton was surrounded by the heaviest concentration of religious relics, but I'm not sure what I would have done even if I had known. The itching continued to nag at my awareness for the next several hours, enough that I sought out some basic medical supplies when I got back to my tent. Disinfected seemed to make it go away, and I finally lay exhausted on my sleeping bag and hoped to do nothing but sleep for the next 12 hours. Unfortunately, that was when Greer invaded my tent and insisted I join him for drinking with some of the female students. We were not friends. It was all part of his carrot and stick routine for controlling people. Threaten quietly, reward publicly, and never let them relax. I, of course, felt trapped. His rewards were well chosen. He seemed to saunter effortlessly among the circles of girls that usually so icily shut me out, and I was welcome and even adored as long as I was riding his coattails. There was no way for me to turn down the opportunity, and... Taking him up on it just put me further under the effects of his later bullying. But that night, I felt odd. With some alcohol in me, I began to feel that itch returning. No matter how much I scratched at my hand, I never seemed to hit the right spot. It was as if the growing burn was a millimeter or two above my skin and mattingly unreachable for lack of actual contact. I excused myself a few hours in to go deal with the infuriating annoyance more thoroughly, but Greer caught up and stopped me. He was a head and a half taller than me, and he knew it. 
Usually I backed down, but that night I was filled with fiery energy. A push sent him staggering back, and he just stared at me as I walked away toward my tent. Once alone, I scratched my pinky finger until it started to bleed, and then I took out a knife, only stopping when I realized that I would just deal myself horrible damage. No, I needed another strategy. If the itch was a millimeter above my skin, maybe I could do the opposite of cutting myself, carefully squeezing the skin. I managed to bunch up a millimeter higher and then rubbed my contorted hands against the rough fabric of my jeans. Oh, God, that was heaven. I can't even begin to describe that first relief and how it felt. The most apt thing would be that it was like scratching a long-denied itch, but that was actually exactly what it was. In any case, I lay on my sleeping bag, sighed happily, and slept wonderfully. My dream that night was simple enough. I was walking across the snow somewhere, but it wasn't cold. I awoke to about five seconds of continued happiness, and then the itch set in again. Staring at my hand in confusion, I realized that the itch was now undeniably outside my hand. I could rotate it and feel the position change, always maintaining itself about an inch to the right of my pinky finger. How could I have an itch outside of my body? Agonized and overwhelmed by a tide of anxious energy brought on by the return of the itch, I began considering rather terrible alternatives. The first was, of course, to try and ignore it. The burning continued outside my hand and even outside my glove as I tried to participate in the dig. I was back at the same malformed body that day and the itch intensified greatly whenever I went too near. I did my best to focus all my energy on resisting the annoying pain, but digging out bones is delicate work and I knew I would just damage something if I continued. I pretended I was sick and headed back to my tent. Greer found me out of sight of the others and left me with a bruised arm and abdomen. Bastard. It was his way. Cold, calculated, and private punishment for crossing him. I didn't have any spare energy to resist, and I walked off the added pain. In fact, the hurt helped me do what needed to be done once I was safely alone in my tent. I'd already found the basic solution the night before. Now I just needed to get my skin an inch out from my pinky. God. Wincing, I carefully pulled out my knife again, sanitized my finger with rubbing alcohol, and then went to work. I aimed to do as little damage as possible. Cutting a tiny flap of skin, I lifted it, but didn't reach my goal. Stealing myself, I cut a little bit further, and then lifted a little bit higher. Still not enough. With tears running down my burning cheeks, I cut all the way to my nail and then lifted the flap of skin away from the muscle. I sighed with euphoria as the scratching finally made contact. It was over. Oh God, it was over. Scratching to my heart's content before closing the skin again and using bio glue to seal the cuts, I wrapped up my pinky and fell asleep. I dreamed again of walking across vast glaciers under an open primordial sky. This time, evening fell, and I sighted something unexpected on a distant mountain. Light. 
I awoke and lay quietly for a time. Cutting myself had been crazy, but that was all over, and I was just glad nobody else had seen me behaving strangely. My relief faded as a familiar burning sensation sparked up again. This time it was a wide strip of itching nearly a foot outside my right arm. I slammed my fist hard to the ground underneath the fabric of my tent, collapsed, and even cried a little. But I knew there was not going to be an easy way out of this like I'd thought. I couldn't... No, twelve inches out, the amount of cutting would be unthinkable. I would have to... I was thinking. I was thinking. I just had to apply some knowledge. I got out my phone and did some searches on the internet. Proprioception. That's what it was called. The human body's sense of where its own limbs are. It was different than the vestibular system I read, narrowing down what I needed to know. Alright, malfunctions in the proprioception system. What could I find? Phantom limb syndrome. Sitting frozen for a time as the itching tingled quietly, I knew I'd hit upon the problem. I hadn't had a limb amputated, but I knew this was still it. I was experiencing phantom limb pain for a limb that I never had. Rushing to the dig site, I pretended all was well and went back to work. On fire in more ways than one, I ignored the itching and uncovered as much of the strange skeleton as I could. My suspicions were vindicated when I began revealing from the ancient rock a third arm. The bones were different in shape and structure and likely would have been categorized as being from a different skeleton, but I knew better. Whatever this thing was... It had more than two arms. My understanding of the situation still contained numerous missing pieces, including the mechanism of how I'd contracted this thing's proprioceptive sense of self, but I had some idea that I was dealing with now. It's easy to say it's time to go to the doctor, but it's another thing to actually do it. I'd lived my entire life avoiding the police and avoiding the doctor simply because that's what you do in America. I couldn't even envision myself going to them with the fragments I had found. I'd be locked up in a heartbeat or given a bankrupting medical bill with no real treatment. No. I had to deal with this on my own. But the limbs gave me an idea. Covering my work with the tarp and heading off, I evaded the other students and headed on foot to the nearby town with my archaeological tools. It was a small space mainly populated to serve the national park, but it did have a graveyard. About here is where, objectively, I see my decision-making was a bit compromised. The only thing I can offer in my defense is this. Imagine an itch the length of your arm but outside your body, burning away horribly in a place you can't even scratch. Imagine that going on for an entire day, worsening with each passing moment. The boiling anger and frustration literally cooks the brain, goading it to desperate action. I can tell you too, though it is no real excuse, that my actions were not entirely my own. I found the most recent grave and began digging. The arm was actually fairly intact. 
After smuggling it back to my tent, I cut away bits of the bone near its shoulder as needed and began stitching both it and myself. Once it was truly part of me, I scratched myself right into a drug-like high. The leathery skin of the corpse arm came away in so many places as rotting flesh tends to do, but I could feel it. I could feel the itch being satisfied. So, so, so happy I lay back relaxed and slipped into that dream again. After treading across a long valley and climbing a steepy, icy slope, I came upon a cave wherein dozens of very lost and dirty mammals sat huddled around a fire. The morning light streaming through the fabric of my tent blended with the image of that fire and woke me in a slow transition. I reached up to block the brightness and stared. My hand was not my hand. No, my hand was still there. This... This was a new one. Yeah. I panicked a bit then. Somehow during the night, the arm that I dug up from the grave and stitched onto myself had become truly attached to me. I could feel through its leathery fingers, move it at will, and even lift things. I had a third arm. What the hell? Even as I stared, the itching began again, this time outside my left arm. That was the morning I realized just how deeply in trouble I was. This was no accident, no random brain malfunction, and no allergic reaction. Something was inside me and doing this to me. For God's sakes, I'd gone to a graveyard and dug up an arm. Where had that idea come from? And how had it become a functioning part of me? I felt stronger, too. My gear felt lighter, and I felt a tension in my muscles that almost demanded I find a way to employ my strength. As I carefully bound one of my arms under my bulky winter jacket so that nobody would notice, I almost hoped Greer would try something today. I was hungry for conflict, and rather excited at the prospect of violence. He was weak. And I would show him who was in charge. But he and some blonde girl had skipped out that day. One particular professor was annoyed, but he always let Greer get away with things like that. I could see now the professor was also somehow under Greer's thumb. Pathetic. Piece by piece, I secretly carried the malformed skeleton away and set it up in my tent exactly as it had been in the ground surrounding religious artifacts and all. What had at first appeared to have been an honored burial now looked to me like an attempted exorcism. Somebody had invented this particular ritual about 90,000 years early, which meant there had likely been a very dire need. And the space above my left arm burned with awareness, numbing agony. No, I couldn't. I wouldn't. I had to stop myself. But there was another voice inside, whispering about possibilities, screaming about relief. It was as if the voice came from the skeleton laid out before me, but also from inside my head. The ancient bones contained a fourth arm that was different from both the original two and third. 
I staggered into the chill woods, intent on fighting the foreign urges with all my strength. It was better if I was delirious and lost, for then I could never find my way to the graveyard. And yet, somehow I did. The new arm attached to me almost immediately. Covered in dirt and rotting gore and sweat, I found my way to the town church. Long ago, men had found a way to deal with this threat, and descendant traditions still existed. The priest within did not believe my rantings and almost called the police. Until I showed him my four arms, and then the spiked bone beginning to pierce the skin above my kneecaps and elbows. The foreign entity inside me shed its sly tactics the moment I let myself be chained up. I could hear its voice in my head, angry, violent, and arrogant. Where had it come from? What did it want? The terrified priest surely didn't know, and he did his best to ignore my rants and pleas until a cadre of other priests arrived. They, too, stared at my forearms. They, too, crossed their chests. Tied up in a blank-walled stone room underneath the church and surrounded by candles and sigils, I found myself evaluating the men for traits I could take from them. Many were older, but one priest was younger and had good muscle tone. I could take that tissue, cut my skin open and push it inside. It would become mine. It was as humans had always meant to be. Editable. It was obvious once little things like squeamishness, disgust, and respect for life were brushed aside. We were modular. Why else would our parts be so uniform? Even as the priests threw water on me for some reason, I grinned. Humans knew it too. They took livers and lungs and kidneys and even hearts from the dead and put them in the living. What was so wrong with what I was doing then? We were all on the same page. The strong deserved to take the weak's best pieces and thus become stronger themselves. That was the way of nature. Why, then, did these people resist? And they'd asked for this. They'd cried out against their own biomechanical failure and eventual mortality. They'd cried out for salvation. They'd prayed, and they'd been heard. Did they reject what they had asked for simply because their arrogant idea of God looked so much like themselves? They mistakenly believed me to be a demon, but if they thought I was their worst nightmare, then I couldn't imagine how they would react if they ever met a real one. And then it was gone, burning away like so much smoke from every pore. I was covered in holy water and strange fluids, and two of the priests were down with minor injuries. The rest were cutting at the stitches, holding my two new arms and they fell away useless. The spiked bones at my knees and elbows were receding too. I shouldn't have been surprised that I was unaware of most of the exorcism. The entity had been fighting for control then, even as it had tried to convince me to support it. Had it just been lying? It couldn't have really been one of the good guys, could it? I shuddered at the thought that the horrifying world of organic osmosis it had shown to me might be the heaven that awaited us after death. You'd be surprised how little bonding there is after an exorcism. It felt a bit like a visit to the DMV. 
The priest made sure I was alright, and that I was myself, and then, well, I was let loose back on the street. What else could they do? It wasn't like we were going to be friends now. Some of them had literally gone white-haired from the shock of whatever they'd witnessed, and they refused to discuss or even look at me. That was it. That was my possession from beginning to end. I still have the skeleton, although any lingering demonic spirit it contained is now gone. The only traces of the entity left are in me. Ideas, attitudes, perhaps a bit of unspoken philosophy. Why speak out? Why tell my tale? (laughs) It's obvious. We've got a lot to learn. The lessons begin now. I don't consider what I've done bad or disgusting. When they took Greer out of his tent bleeding, crying, and screaming, I could only feel the predatory triumph of the strong. The students and professors were outwardly horrified, sure, but I could tell they were appreciative that someone had done something to free them all from their false god. Appearances were important to this culture, that I knew. Therefore, what I took from him would be unseen by most, and yet it had been the source of his strength and would now be the source of mine. I gazed around the circle of onlookers until I found the blonde girl he dallied with the day before. In a way, I could now see her the way he had seen her, in all of her willingness and beauty. She was a good choice. She made eye contact with me and blushed, but I did not look away. I grinned. Something keeps posing me in my sleep. It all started when my dad found the old car in the woods. I was away at college then, and neither him or mom told me about it when it happened. Instead, they waited to bring it up over Thanksgiving dinner in a tensely casual way that clearly wasn't casual at all. Like parents soft-pedaling news after turning your room into an office, or that after a lot of thought, they'd decided to separate for a while and see how things go. I could hear the nerves in my mother's voice as she brought it up with a tight little laugh. I guess they hadn't told me yet, but back a few weeks ago, my father had found an old car abandoned at the back of our land. Or maybe, Dad added, abandoned wasn't the best word. There were two bodies inside, after all. I remember choking on my drink a little at that. My first thought was that I had misheard or they were playing a joke on me, though that seemed out of character for my father. A glance at his face and then my mother told me all I needed to know. They were serious. And more than that, they seemed worried, maybe even scared. I asked what they were talking about. How did something like that happen? And my father told me that the police said it was a married couple that had been missing for over five years. The working theory was that they had driven them up to the dirt access road that ran along the back of our land, then turned into the trees. Somehow, from there, they'd somehow navigated a path through the woods until they were in the hundred-acre wilderness behind the farmland we rarely even ventured into these days. But in September of that year, 
my father had taken to walking in the woods some afternoons. And it was on these walks that he found an old brown sedan wedged between two trees and covered in layers of dirt and pollen and pine needles so thick he didn't even recognize it for what it was until he got close enough to touch it. And it wasn't until he spit out onto the window and swiped a patch clean that he could see the bodies inside. Neither of them would say much more than that the missing couple was dead inside and had been all very strange and sad. When I pressed the issue, my mother changed the subject, and between that and the foreboding look from my father, I let it drop. It wasn't until me and Dad were out on the porch a few hours later that he brought it back up. Sorry to be so vague in there about, you know, the car in the woods. I looked around, surprised. Less that he would talk about it than how he was speaking. A low, almost secretive tone that still seemed heavily corded with some kind of tension I didn't quite understand. Not that finding bodies in our woods wouldn't be freaky, but two months later, I didn't know why it was still affecting them so much. But I just met his eyes and nodded. No problem. I paused for a moment, testing the air of the conversation before going further in. So, what happened to them? Dad raised his eyebrows and puffed out a small breath. I, uh, I don't know for sure. The cops called it a murder-suicide, and maybe that's all it was, but... Sheriff Perry and his couple of deputies aren't good for much beyond traffic tickets and breaking up a bar fight. I think if there had been a fuss from anyone, it might have been looked into more, but as it was, well, people talked about it a couple weeks, and then it was done. He took a sip of his beer. At least for most people. Who killed who, and how? Were they from around here? He shook his head. No. They weren't even from Alabama. Came from somewhere east of Columbus family that I know of and no signs of what led them here to our middle-of-nowhere farm either. My father licked his lips nervously. The cops determined that the husband killed his wife and then shot himself. I frowned. You're being real careful how you phrase stuff, Dad. Is, is that what you think happened? What did you see? Turning around, he glanced in through the window to make sure Mom was still inside watching TV. Looking back at me, he lowered his voice a little more. You can't mention this to her. She loves those woods, and it's bad enough that I had to tell her what I found in the first place. I spared her the details, and I'll tell you, you have to swear you won't peep a bit of it to her. His lips drew down slightly. I know I don't push her much beyond edge of those woods, but we enjoy it, and I won't have that tainted for her. You understand? I nodded as I took a shaky breath. Yeah, of course, yeah. He patted my leg and nodded as he offered me a brief smile. Okay, good. But then the smile left as quick as it had come, and his expression became hard and worried again as he sent his words out to me 
across the night air. The first part, that's just like what we told you over dinner. I was out walking, thinking about trying to find a route I could turn into a chair-safe path for your mother when I saw this mound of something through the trees on my right. That wound up being the car, and like I said, I spit and wiped at the driver's side window until I could see inside a little. See that people were in there. What looked like a man laying his head on the shoulder of a woman in the passenger seat. But it was still really dark in there. I could have cleared away more of the dirt and leaves and such, but once I saw people inside, I panicked. Reaching down, I yanked on the door. Didn't open at first. Not because it was locked, but because it was stuck. Cops said bodies left to rot in cars like that can create a weird seal that makes it hard to open. Still, I didn't know at that time, and in my excitement and panic... I think I was still worried someone might be in there hurt or knocked out. So I yanked again, and this time the door came squealing open. The bodies were rotted, I guess, but in a weird way. They weren't gross or anything, and they reminded me of mummies more than skeletons, though they were kind of fat mummies. They looked more like people than I'd have expected, but weird at the same time. That's when I noticed all the strings. There were these red... I I think of them as strings, but they were more like tendons or strips of leather or... I don't know. They were hard and stretched tight. Thin lines of red wrapped around those people's wrists and arms and head and... Well, all over. I thought maybe it was dried blood or mold, but when I pulled out my flashlight, I could see that it looked like meat. Like raw meat, coiling around them all over like snakes before trailing out into the shadows of the car. I shined my light to see where the strings all went, but they didn't go anywhere. They just stopped in mid-air. In a dozen different places, I could see, full of tension like they were attached to something that filled the car, but that I couldn't see. was reaching for one of them, just to see what it felt like when I saw it start to uncurl from around the man's shoulder. Uncurl and rise, almost like it was coming to meet me. So I ran. When I got back to the house, I called 911, met the deputies here, and then led them into the woods, found the car and bodies easily enough, but all those strings, they were all gone. They looked at the bodies before taking them out of the car. Scott Keller, one of the deputies, he told me the man wasn't just resting his head on the lady's shoulder. He'd been biting out the side of her neck when he shot himself in the head. I... I didn't ask any more questions after that. Didn't want to know more after that. And I didn't say anything about the red stuff I saw. Figured maybe I'd been in shock and seeing things. By the next morning, the bodies and the car were both gone. And, well, I guess that's it. I'd expected him 
to laugh or look relieved to finally tell someone about what he saw, but he didn't look any less worried than he had before. Not sure what to say, I wound up starting with the question in the forefront of my mind, both because I was curious and because I could tell Dad didn't think he'd just imagined the strange stuff he'd seen in the car. So, what do you really think the red stuff was? He sat silent for several seconds, staring out at the moonlight stretched out across the yard. When he spoke, his voice sounded hollow and thin. I don't know. I really did try to tell myself it was nothing. That I made it up somehow, but... He shrugged. I wonder what would make a man do something like that. I blinked, caught off guard by the change of subject. Who do what? His voice was barely above a whisper now. Hurt his wife. I bet he loved her. And he still did it. To her and to himself. Dad turned to me, his eyes wide. I mean, he would have had to, wouldn't he? Uh, was there someone else that could have done it? Did the police say that? He shook his head slowly as though the motion required almost more effort than he had to give. No. Nothing like that, I just... He sighed. I'm so tired. I leaned forward to catch his eye. Dad, are you okay? Offering me a warm smile, he nodded and stood up slowly. Yeah, sure. Just haven't been sleeping well lately. He lowered his gaze. Been sleepwalking a bit, if you can believe it. I went to say more, but then Mom was opening the door to ask if we were ready for pie. I almost brought it up again to him, or mentioned some of it to her, despite my promise to keep my father's secret. Instead, I told myself I was making too much of it all. Overall, he acted like himself, and he was a middle-aged man who had his worries, as most everyone does. If the worst his midlife crisis got was a bit of sleepwalking, I think we could handle it. That Sunday, I hugged them goodbye and promised I'd be home the weekend before Christmas. I made it back to my apartment just before midnight, and by the time I fell asleep, I already knew I'd missed my early class. By Tuesday, I was back into the swing of things, though on my way to work, I got a call from a number I didn't recognize, but with the area code from back home. When I answered, a voice introduced itself as Sheriff Perry. He told me that sometime Monday night, my father murdered my mother and then killed himself. The five years since have been difficult, but as with most things, time has caused the worst of it to fade, at least a little. I still think about my parents every day, feel guilty for not doing more every day, wonder what could have happened to make dad go crazy like he did every day, but at least I don't hate myself anymore, 
and the pain left by their absence has been lessened by meeting Martina and having our little girl. I have a good life. Bordering on a great life, if I'm honest, and for months now I've been simultaneously trying to give up the last of the grief and guilt I hold while having this superstitious feeling that if I ever stop being sad and upset about it, all the good things I have will be taken away. Some curse for not caring enough to be miserable. Maybe that's why when I got the package from the Russet County Sheriff's Office, I was filled with a combination of dread and preserve joy. Whatever it was, it had to be tied to my parents' deaths. Whatever it was, it was a way to pry open old wounds again. What it was, after ten minutes of me staring at it and chewing my lip, was a note and a book. The note was from the new Sheriff Keller. It just said, this was the only thing taken from your parents' death investigation that wasn't a biohazard. Was cleaning out old evidence and thought you might want it. Sorry again for your loss. The book was one of my mother's, a hardbound copy of Stranger in a Strange Land. Eyes welling up with tears, I opened it, planning just to flip through it before putting it back in the box. My father's handwriting on the inner corner. Something keeps posing me in my sleep. I wake up in strange places with strange thoughts. I don't feel like me anymore. It's hard to feel anything. Anything but the strength. My hands were shaking as I read my father's words. Sucking in a huge breath, I began to fan through the pages for any other writing when I realized that the middle portion of the book was stuck together, a thick section of pages moving as one as I reached them. Frowning, I gently tried to pry them apart, and after a moment of resistance, they split open in the middle, revealing the thing holding them together. It looked like a raw red wound, thickly wet and penetrating multiple pages in both directions. It might have been a small, deformed heart if books had such a thing. I felt my stomach turn as the light caught its moist, shimmering surface, and I had the insane and horrifying thought that this was something my father had done. Some part of my mom he'd cut off and hidden away in her favorite book, but no, this was far too fresh and it moved. I threw the book across the room, shuddering as I stepped outside to collect my thoughts. It was stress. It had to be stress. Or it was something that had been in the evidence room that had spilled on the book before they sent it back. I needed to just go in and throw it away. Getting it out of the house was the main thing. Heart hammering, I went back inside. Martina would be home with the baby soon. No need for them to ever know this was even here. I'd just pick it up, run it out to the trash can, and... I stopped by the front door, staring at the book dangling from one outstretched hand. There were no stuck-together pages now. No sign of anything weird or gross inside. Stepping out onto the front steps, I flipped through the pages again. My father's writing was still inside of the front cover, but otherwise, it was just a book 
No raw red horror waiting to get me from between the pages. Shuddering at the memory, I started walking toward the trash can again. Nothing had really changed. I didn't want it in the house, didn't want to think about it ever again, if I could help it. So into the trash it went, and over the next few weeks, everything seemed fine. Until I started sleepwalking. I'd wake up standing in the kitchen or in the yard. I'd be sitting down in the living room or bent over like I was looking under the dining room table. My muscles would be tense and sore as though I had been exercising or positioned strangely for some time, but I never had any real sense of how I'd gotten to where I was or what I was doing in my sleep. Four nights ago, I woke up in the crawl space underneath the house. When I found a light, I saw that there was a rope and a hammer under there with me, though I didn't remember ever using either under the house before. It freaked me out enough, and then I got Martina to take the baby and go stay at her mother's for a few days, lied and said I was getting sick and didn't want our girl to get it. For the next few nights, if I walked, I didn't know it. I slept a ton, and when I was awake, I felt disconnected and strange. When my wife called about coming home yesterday, I told her to come on, that I missed her and that I wanted her home, that everything was a-okay again. When I woke up last night, I was standing over our baby's crib, a 20-pound rock from the garden held over my head. I should have been horrified, but I only felt mildly curious. Why weren't my feet dirty? Had I put on shoes or gotten the rock earlier in the day? I bet I'd planned ahead. Yeah, planning ahead was always good. Quietly, I eased the front door open and tossed the rock back outside. Everything wasn't right yet. Not yet. I could still feel worry and fear in my stomach, like a tiny man screaming as he got eaten up by my belly's acid. Yes, eaten right up until there was nothing left to fight. Stepping back inside, I saw Martina's cell phone laying on the table where she'd left it when they'd come home. Laughing to myself, I pulled off the phone's case and headed into the kitchen. After a moment of quiet probing, I found a small felt-tip pen in the back of one of the drawers. When I was done, I put the case back on it, like it had been before. No one would know until it was all done. Climbing the stairs back to our bedroom, I chuckled again. Not yet, no. But soon enough. Soon, everything would be quiet and ready, and it would be good and right and wonderful. I thought again of what I'd written inside the phone's case and beamed into the dark. To a puppet, strings are God.
The first time it happened, I woke up in the bathtub under six inches of water. My lungs were drinking instead of breathing, and my brain was screaming that I needed to do something, anything, to make it stop. After half a second of terrified thrashing, I grabbed the edge of the tub and sat up, sputtering and coughing for a moment before pulling myself over the edge onto the cold tile floor. I still don't know what was going on or where I was, but I knew I didn't want to be near that water anymore. It was as though I'd woken up in the middle of a deep black ocean and was afraid of what might be below waiting to pull me down. But it wasn't an ocean. I was in the bathroom of my apartment, and apparently I'd fallen asleep while taking a bath. Except I didn't take baths. I probably hadn't taken a legitimate bath since I was in elementary school, and I certainly had only used the shower in three years that I lived in that apartment. So why the fuck was I in the tub half drowned? My first thought was that I'd been sleepwalking. I'd had a problem with it as a kid, but I thought I'd grown out of it. And even at my most active, the most dangerous thing I'd ever done is wake up my older brother by walking around in his room one night. But filling up the bathtub, taking off my clothes, and getting in all while sleepwalking? That sounded impossible. I continued to ponder as I dried myself off and got dressed. My throat was raw from coughing and my lungs burned and hurt. I'm sure it was my imagination, but it seemed like there was a gallon of water sloshing around in my chest. I headed into the kitchen and got a glass of milk, hoping it would coat my throat and ease off the coughing. Pacing around the apartment, I tried to focus enough to figure out what had happened. What else could it be? Had I gone out and gotten drunk, or maybe someone slipped me something? No, I mean, I remember going to bed, but there were no signs on my phone or in the apartment that I'd gotten back up and gone anywhere. Maybe I was sick or something. Working at the hospital, even in administration, I get exposed to stuff all the time. We all did, so I might have just had a cold or a flu, and it was making me have weird dreams and do weird stuff. Except, I felt fine overall, and... The woman. I, I, I just remembered the woman on the stretcher the day before. I work in accounts receivable for one of the local hospitals, which usually means I spend my days on the admin floor of the building going through paperwork and processing insurance claims. But there are always times when we have to go to the other floors to either explain a past bill, clear up a dispute as to how a procedure should be coded, or other random boring work shit. Because of that, I knew a lot of people throughout the hospital and even had a couple of good friends from other floors. The day before the night of the bathtub, I'd been dropping off some new change of information and forms at a nurse's station when I saw my buddy Jackie pushing a woman on a stretcher down the hall. Jackie was a physician's assistant, and normally he was very laid back and cheerful, but this time his expression was serious and troubled as he glanced towards me. Hey man, how's it going? I smiled and nodded to him. Can't complain, just playing paper, boy. I paused, almost waiting to ask him if everything was okay before remembering he was with a patient. I could always shoot him a text later and find out if... The woman on the stretcher 
shot out her hand and gripped mine as we met in the hallway. Letting out a small yelp, I looked down and realized for the first time that underneath her sheet, she was strapped down to the bed she was traveling on. She'd somehow gotten her arm free, though, and her grip on my hand was tight and hot as she began to let out a pleading scream. It's going to get me. It's going to keep on until it gets me. You have to help me. I stood there stunned, half-heartedly trying to pull free as I stared at the yelling woman. She was a little older than me, and I'd probably think she was very pretty under normal circumstances, but now... With her eyes wide and staring at me as she wailed and tightened her grip on my hand, well, she was terrifying. But then Jackie was between us, yanking me free and wheeling the woman on down the hall. I stared after them in mute shock for a few seconds before going back to my office with the paperwork undelivered. A few minutes later, Jackie texted me apologizing. I asked him if the woman was okay. Was she sick with anything? I was concerned about her, but I was also wanting to make sure she didn't have something contagious. His response was short and to the point. Nah, man, just fucked up in the head is all. No worries. I didn't get much sleep that night, and the next day at work I was pretty much a zombie. To the extent my brain worked at all, I was preoccupied by thoughts of that woman on the stretcher, wondering what was wrong with her, wondering if my tub episode was some kind of weird late reaction getting freaked out by her the day before. I wanted to head straight home after work, get some sleep so I didn't feel like shit, but unfortunately, I'd already agreed to meet my brother at our grandparents' house. Our grandfather had been dead for five years, and our grandmother had followed two years later, but there was still stuff in the garage and attic that needed to be gone through and thrown away. We'd put it off repeatedly, but the week before my brother had called and said he was taking a couple days off work and coming down to get it done. He'd asked if I could come down and help some in the evenings, to which I said sure. It'd be good to see him, and I was happy to help. All of which was true, at least before I almost drowned myself and didn't get any sleep. I considered calling him and begging off, but when I got in my car, I changed my mind. I could go over and help for a couple of hours. I mean, what could it hurt? And if I could push through that, no doubt I'd be tired enough to sleep hard tonight. And that's what happened. I went over, we moved shit out of the garage, ate some pizza and drank some beer, and then went home, falling asleep almost immediately. And then I woke up breathing poison. My lungs felt like they were on fire. I was trying to look around, figure out what was going on, but my eyes were burning and watering so bad I couldn't see anything. Reaching out, I felt around. I was in a car. I could feel the steering wheel, the seat belt across my waist, and yes, the door latch. I tried to open the door, but nothing happened. After a moment of panic fumbling, I found the unlock button and tried again. The door opened, though not easily. It felt like something was hanging on the door, and it banged into something as I gave a stronger push and threw it wide. I didn't care. I just needed to get away, get where I could breathe. I unbuckled the seatbelt and tried to get out of the car, but my legs collapsed under me. I realized with growing panic that I was very close to blacking out, and if I did, I knew I'd never wake up again. 
I was breathing in exhaust or something, and I had to find a way out before it was too late. Crawling as fast as I could, I ran my hand along the walls until I found what felt like a door. Reaching up, I felt around until I felt a knob and turned it. My heart sped up as cool, clean night air washed against my face. Scrabbling, I made it out into the grass before the black took over me again. When I woke up the next time, Jackie looked uncomfortable as he glanced at the door before returning his gaze to me. They probably don't want me telling you about it yet, but... Yeah, okay. They found you outside your grandparents' garage last night, man. You had carbon monoxide poisoning and the car was rigged up like you were trying to... The hose was taped to the window and the exhaust just like in the movies. It looked like he was going to try and make a joke before thinking better of it. Is that what happened? Did you try to... Or was it a joke or something, maybe? He seemed to add the last bit with a bit of hope in his voice. I frowned, shaking my head before realizing that any motion just made it hurt more than it already was. What? No, I... I didn't... No, I, I, I didn't try to do that. I didn't do that at all. I went to bed at home last night, and then I woke up. You said I was at my grandparents' house? Jackie nodded. Yeah, a neighbor went out to take his dog for a piss in the middle of the night, and you were out there in the grass. He freaked out and called 911. He paused, swallowing. It's a good thing, too. Doctor said you were bad off when you got in there. He looked at the door again before continuing. Look, they have you admitted as a possible suicide attempt. They're just going to keep you for observation for a few hours, but just cooperate with them and it should be cool. He frowned. But if you need to talk, man, I'm here. And if you're having problems with dark thoughts or something, it's not something to be ashamed of. You should talk to me or someone. I scowled at him. I'm telling you, I didn't do this. I had something weird happen to me the other night at home, too. I thought it was just this freak sleep thing, but now I think something is trying to kill me. I raised my hand slowly, every bone and muscle seeming to ache with the motion. I know it sounds crazy and paranoid, but I swear... Someone has been trying to fake my death, or or something. Jackie had stiffened as I talked, the concern on his face slowly being overtaken by fear. Who talked to you about her? I frowned in confusion. Who, her, what are you talking about? He sat back in his chair, his face paling. The woman from a couple of days ago. The one that grabbed you when we passed in the hall, that... He glanced back at the hall before continuing in a lowered voice. That's the kind of crazy shit she was talking about. I sat up more, trying to force myself to focus, despite my thudding headache. What kind of crazy shit? I, I swear I don't know what you're talking about. Jackie studied me for a moment before letting out a sigh. I don't know... I only talked to her for a few minutes before I got the doc in, and he decided she needed a full eval and observation, but she was telling me stories about how she'd found out some 
crazy homeless person around the city. Some cult or something. She said she used to work at a shelter and a couple of months ago, things went to shit there. A friend of hers disappeared. She got scared and was thinking about selling her shit and moving away, but then one day she came home to find a noose hanging from the ceiling, ready and waiting. Another time she woke up to find she smelled gas in her place. The oven's pilot light had been blown out and the burner was on. He stopped and looked down as he rubbed his head. Look, man, this this may just be making you worse. Uh, I should shut up. No, no, please, tell me the rest. I, I need to know. I need to understand what's happening. He shrugged. Okay, well, there's not much else anyway. She got pulled in here after she threw herself, according to her, pushed in, in front of an oncoming train. The only reason she didn't die is because her foot got hung on the edge of the platform and she fell down beside it instead. Fucked up her arm pretty good, but I guess not the right one. He shot me a guilty look. I'm sorry, I didn't stop her from grabbing you, man. I was freaked out by what she had told me and was trying to keep it together. I should have watched her better, but... You have to be logical. There's no way she's causing this. I gave a slight shrug. I'm not saying it's magic or something, but maybe she's crazy and somehow fixated on me. Has someone on the outside fucking with me to make you believe her crazy story? I don't know. I'm just trying to... What's wrong? Jackie shook his head. She's dead, man. I'm sorry, but she's dead. Just a couple of hours after we passed you in the hall, they said they don't know how, but she managed to choke herself to death with her own pants. He leaned forward, his eyes dark and his voice shaky. It shouldn't be possible. Like, you can hang yourself and shit, but I've always heard you can't actually choke yourself or hit yourself or, like, whatever yourself to death. You'd black out first and your body's basic instinct to survive would kick in before you could finish the job. Licking his lips, he sat back again and looked toward the door. Look, I could be fired for talking about her stuff, dead or not. Please don't tell anybody what I told you, okay? I'll talk to the doc and see if we can get you out sooner. He stood up as he gave me a nervous smile. I'll check on you again soon. Just try to relax and not freak yourself out, okay? I was barely listening to him anymore, and when I gave him a slight nod, he seemed satisfied enough to make a hasty retreat. I was in the hospital two more days after that, but I did as Jackie suggested. I cooperated and kept my crazy theories to myself. told them I don't know what happened, but I was happy to do whatever they recommended. The day I was released from the hospital, I got noticed that I was on administrative leave for two weeks so I could recover and recuperate which I assumed meant I was being kept home while they looked for a palatable reason to fire me. I was okay. I didn't really care anymore. If I didn't figure out what was going on soon, the only ones benefiting from me having a job were the ones getting the life insurance money. Then again, I don't think they even pay when it's suicide. As soon as Jackie dropped me off at home and pulled away, I immediately got into my car and started driving to the nearest electronics store. The car still stank from exhaust fumes, and I could see little globs of adhesive where the hose had been taped to the crack in the driver's side window. 
Fuck, how could any of this been happening? Who's doing this and how? That's what security camera I bought was going to help me find out. My plan was simple. I was going to stay holed up in my room with the camera going the whole time. If something else weird happened, then assuming I could survive it, I should have some kind of proof. If nothing happened, then I could figure out if my next step was more cameras or going to a psychologist. I set it up that afternoon, and after getting some drinks and food stockpiled in the room, I locked the bedroom door and hid the key. I was pretty much limited to just the bed, the area around the bed, and the master bathroom. The camera was set up to see part of the bathroom too, but I was mainly concerned with how it all started. Either I was moving myself or someone was moving me, and whichever it was, the camera should catch it. I woke up a few hours later with the points of a kitchen knife less than an inch from my left eye. I froze at first, but then I realized I was holding the knife at myself, and I flung it away with a yell. Shaking, I got up and checked the bedroom and the bathroom. No one was there, and there were no signs of anyone having gotten in either. That left the camera footage. For three hours, there was nothing other than me watching television and then falling asleep. I move around a bit in my sleep, but nothing weird. Then from somewhere out of frame, something falls onto the bed. Zooming in and replaying, I saw it was the knife. It's just like it dropped from the ceiling or out of thin air. Barely able to breathe, I kept watching the video. The knife slid across the bed toward my outstretched hand, and as I stared in horror, I saw my hand move and curl around the plastic knife handle. It looked wrong, though. Not just because I was still asleep, but... My hand and arm, even my fingers, were moving weird. Less like I picked up the knife and pointed at my face, but almost like some invisible person or thing was lifting and manipulating me on their own. That's when I saw it. In the video, there was a subtle shift on the sheet next to me. The bed moved slightly as something unseen changed its position, maybe so it could get a better angle on pointing the knife at my face. A mixture of anger and fear flooded through me. I felt violated and terrified, but at least I had some proof. Something I could point to and show I wasn't crazy. I see you, motherfucker. I see you. Suddenly on the video, my hand stopped its slow trajectory toward my face. It dropped to my side before turning to carry the knife above my head. There was a flurry of quick motions as the knife seemed to dig at the wall behind my pillows and then it was drifting back to hover above my face until I woke up over 40 minutes later. Setting my phone down from watching the video, I looked toward the wall behind my bed. Even with my pillows there, I thought I could see the edge of something scratched there. When I pulled them away, I found eight little words carved into the sheetrock in sharp, ragged strokes. I see you too. And I never sleep.